Well, we are diving into a deep and mysterious well this morning. Many of you were with us back in, anybody remember 2018 uh, and 19 when we were in our preaching series in the book of Romans? And some of you remember how our study in chapters 9, 10, and 11 was a life-changing experience. And already this morning, we've read a portion of Romans 9 in our call to worship, verses 1 to 18. And, and maybe that last verse that I read, verse 18, it might have brought back some memories. It might have just sort of hit you square in the eyes. Let, let me just say it again so that you can let this sink in. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In my experience, Christians who have set their mind to study the doctrine of God's sovereignty in Romans 9 through 11 in particular have one of several different responses. Some are astonished by it and even bothered by it because it challenges what they had previously thought about how God saves sinners and because it, it, it challenges what they've been taught in the past, maybe by other pastors or other people in their lives. So some are astonished, a little bit bothered. Some flatly refuse to see it or believe it. They would prefer to just sort of remain in the dark and just, this is what I think about how God operates and, and that's fine by me. Some are incredibly encouraged by it because it sets off some light bulbs in their mind. It begins to connect some dots that in the past they hadn't really been able to connect and then there are those who sort of take it to a next level of spiritual insight. They recognize that God's sovereignty is actually the foundation for why we worship. And they realize that sovereignty is what prevents us from moral posturing and from boasting in our salvation. We learn it's actually the basis for our compassion for lost people. It's the reason we pray because God is able to save. This is the reason we pray for lost people in our lives, people who don't know Jesus. And yes, God's sovereignty drives our passion for evangelism because we know that God can take the worst of sinners and turn them into saints because he is sovereign. And so yes, it's true that sovereignty is a, a deep and mysterious well, but when you get to the bottom of it, it's really a glorious place to be. And for more than 15 years here at Oak Hill, we've continued to preach this without apology and hoping that, that I, we can sort of drag the, everybody along in this because it's not easy and, and we're patient and we want to be sensitive about this topic because it's very, very difficult. And I want to be sensitive this morning. I realize the doctrine of election or the doctrine of sovereignty is not easy by any means that there is a great tension involved in it. Sovereignty, if or election, if you prefer, has to be carefully handled, and it has to be balanced. We don't want to hyper-focus on it like some churches do, nor do we want to back away from it when it comes up in the text. I know a lot of preachers will, will, will feed their congregations a steady diet of topical sermons so that they can get around hard subjects like this, but when you're an expositional church, as we are here at Oak Hill, preaching through books of the Bible from the beginning to the end, you're inevitably going to bump into sovereignty. In fact, it's all over the place, isn't it? And so you got to teach on it, and we're not going to apologize for that. Now, what we're going to see in today's passage is that Paul, in Romans 9, was definitely not the first person to teach on this subject, not by a long shot. And sometimes people think that. They think, oh, just Paul was the only one who really hammered this point home. We're going to see that the Bible's teaching on sovereignty goes back to the very beginning. You'll find it in the Torah. You'll find it in the Prophets. We're definitely going to see it both in the words of Jesus and from John. So know this, Romans 9 is not a doctrinal island that stands by itself. Far from it, the Bible is incredibly consistent on the subject that God is sovereign over all. Now, why do we find it so difficult? Let me just deal with the elephant in the room. Allow me to read just a little bit more from our call to worship in Romans 9 this morning. And as I read this, some tension may rise up in your heart, and that's okay. By the way, it's okay. We live in the tension on this subject, and that's okay. We'll work through it together. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it, meaning salvation, depends not on human will or on human exertion, but solely upon God who has mercy. This is why we struggle with this. Nobody in their flesh wants to be told that their life or their future destiny is not in their hands. That doesn't feel good. 
Nobody in their flesh wants to be told that he or she is absolutely dependent on God's mercy if he or she is going to be saved. Human beings, naturally, especially those of us in the modern-day Western world, we are, want to be pro-choice about everything, right? We want to control everything. We want to say, I will choose if I worship God or not. I will choose if I go to heaven or hell, we say. It's all within my control. But then someday you open up the Bible and you read a passage and it, it's sort of hard to admit that I have to give up ground on this because what I'm reading doesn't line up with what I wish were true in my flesh. And, and there's a battle going on in our hearts and minds to figure it out. Augustine, how many of you guys know Augustine? The greatest philosopher and theologian of his age went through the same process that some of you have in trying to understand more about sovereignty. And like every natural man, you know what he wanted to hold on to? His free will choice. In fact, I'm going to give you a quote from him that he writes in his own, there it is. He writes this, in trying to solve this question, I made strenuous efforts on behalf of the preservation of the free choice of the human will, but the grace of God defeated me. Hmm. I had that same experience early on in my walk with Jesus. I had come to believe that I was responsible for my salvation, that, that I was smart enough, wise enough to, to see Jesus and to believe in him. I had that. Some of you had that same experience, right? It was only later as I wrestled with the specific language in multiple places in the Bible that the grace of God defeated me just like it did Augustine. It overcame me, it overwhelmed me. And then I went from seeing it as this is really hard to this is really beautiful. In fact, this is why I worship the way I do today. And that's a, that, that's a journey that some of you aren't on yet. You may be on, you may be in process, you may be on the backside of it, but we're all in this journey to understand more about how the sovereignty of God fits with human responsibility. It's not an easy thing. Now, so far in the Gospel of John, We've repeatedly heard this beautiful message about how God works in order to save sinners. But today, we're going to see some very specific language that's very different. We're going to see today about how God is also involved in hardening the hearts and hardening the minds of some people precisely so that they will not see. Precisely so they will not hear. Precisely so that they will not believe. And this is where we all get just a little bit uneasy, right? That's uncomfortable. Now, as you feel the weight of this, I want you to remember that already in the Gospel of John, Jesus has talked about this multiple times, just not in quite so blunt language. For example, in chapter six, he told us that he will save in particular all that the Father gives him. Okay? So whoever the Father deems and gives to him, he will save. That's what we call the particular choice, right? He said that nobody can come to him. How many people? Nobody can come to him unless the Father draws them. So it's not about the human will or the human exertion. It's about God who has mercy. And in chapter 10, we learn that the good shepherd's chosen sheep will hear his voice, will come out, will follow him, and why won't the rest? Because they do not belong to the good shepherd. That's all election. That's all God's sovereignty over salvation. But the language in today's passage, like I said, is even more direct and that's the source of our tension. Now, before we dive in, let's acknowledge that there is a great mystery here. We don't like that. But as Western Christians, we want everything tucked together, lined up, connected, systematized. And sometimes it's hard to, to hear somebody say, let the tension be there. It's a mystery. Uh, do I hope that someday when I get to see Jesus face to face, I'll understand it in full? Absolutely. I have questions. Right? But for now, there is some mystery to it. Here's what we need to be careful of. That we as creatures, and more than that, deeply sinful creatures, that we, we can stand back and say, I will sit today in the judgment seat of God. I will, I will judge God for his will and for his motives and for why he does this. Do not do that. You are not, you know, don't be Job or Jonah or anybody else that questioned God. That doesn't, that doesn't turn out well. I know how small my mind is compared to God. I know how small my vision, how narrow my vision is compared to what God knows. And I know how sinful I am compared to God. And so therefore, I am not going to sit in judgment of, uh, and say, this, I don't understand why God does this. He shouldn't do it this way. 
That's a dangerous place to be. So when we take on hard topics, it's important to number one, stay humble. Number two, take God at his word. And number three, seek greater understanding as you continue for the rest of your life to walk with Jesus. Amen? That's a long introduction. Grab your Bibles. Here we go. Romans 12. I say Romans. That's hilarious. Don't go to Romans. Go to John. John 12. Romans 12 would be fine, but let's go to John 12. We're only biting off five verses this morning. And that, I know, right? And, and, and I know everybody's giving me a hard time about how long it's taken us to get through John. I've just given up. Thank you. It takes as long as it takes. And you know what? I don't want to just skim over this. It's too important because the language here is very serious. We're going to go through verses 37 to 41. Let's back up to verse 35. We'll read it in context here. You might recall that last Sunday's message, we talked about how the crowds in Jerusalem are beginning to turn against Jesus. Okay, right? So we're only a couple days into Passion Week, but Friday's coming, right? Jesus knows that, but the crowds are already beginning to turn. Just three days before this, he had ridden triumphantly into the city, right? Everybody hailed him as the king. But now the people are starting to question everything. They're hearing him teach, and what they hear is him talking about dying, not conquering. That is not what they want. That is not what they're looking for. So they're beginning to turn because they want a Messiah that, that meets their needs. They're not searching for God. They want what they want. And so Jesus leaves them with this ominous warning, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, for a, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. And then there's this surprising statement at the end here of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and what? Hid himself from them. He went away and hid himself. Now, I described this last Sunday as a judicial withdrawal, and I compared it to the days of Ezekiel when the Spirit of God left the temple, withdrew from the temple because judgment was coming. Right? Days of Ezekiel. And so now we see Jesus doing the same thing. He withdraws from the temple. He leaves the temple knowing that judgment is coming. He's going to the cross and there will be great darkness in the world. So he leaves the temple and he hides himself so that he cannot be found by his fellow Jews. That's serious language. He hides himself so that he cannot be found by his fellow Jews. And these are his last public words to the crowds before the cross. Everything from this point forward in John's gospel, Jesus is now going to deal with his disciples in private because he's got to prepare them for what's coming on Friday because that is going to blow their mind and rock their world. So everything from this point forward is to prepare the disciples. Okay, let's look at today's passage, verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So if I could paraphrase this in simple English. Here's what John reports. Even though Jesus had provided his fellow Jews with ample evidence, including miracles, raising a man from the dead, to show them that he had been sent by God, they were still refusing to believe him. And that's hard. isn't that hard to believe? We all think we would do better, don't we? It's so hard to believe. These are God's covenant people, right? The descendants of Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. They've been given every advantage to recognize the Messiah, right? They've been given the very word of God and the covenants and the promises and the patriarchs and the adoption of sons, all these different things that Paul mentioned in Romans 9. They've been given all of those things. So the question is, how could they possibly fail to recognize their own Messiah when he arrived? And it raises the question, and I'll put it on the screen. Did God fail in making himself known to Israel? Did God fail in making himself known to the Jews? It's the very question that Paul raises in Romans 9. There's some amazing parallels here. In fact, answering that question is at the core of Paul's argument for God's sovereignty. Remember what he said? He said it caused him great sorrow and unceasing grief that his fellow Jews had rejected Jesus. And then in Romans 9 through 11, he addresses the why. Why did that happen? And I'll just summarize it with a few quick statements. 
chapters 9 to 11. In chapter 9, Paul says God is utterly sovereign over salvation and utterly sovereign over every human heart. In chapter 10, he says, but human beings are still accountable to God for the light that he's given to them. And then in chapter 11, he says, God's promises to Israel remain, but for a time, there is a judicial hardening that has come upon them. And that has opened the door to what? The gospel going out to the rest of the world, to Gentiles. That's why we're worshiping here today. Okay, so, so did, did God fail? I mean, did, did he, does he need to upgrade his PR team? Does he need to communicate better? Because the Jews completely missed it. His own covenant people, they completely missed the Messiah. Did God fail? Paul obviously says in Romans 9 through 11, absolutely not. This is what's going on. And our text for today is John's contribution to this very same argument. Verse 37 makes it clear. The Jews have no excuse. So many signs, John says, have been laid before them, but they would not believe. They're without excuse. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at this. We've already been informed in John's gospel why human beings don't want to believe, don't want to follow Jesus. Back in chapter 3, right after the most famous verse in the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? And we say, amen, that's great news. Do you know what comes right after that? This bad news. Verses 19 and 20, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does, does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. And so people turn away from the light because they get exposed, and nobody likes to have their sin revealed. So they avoid it. They don't want to give up their sin, right? They want to love and serve themselves, not God. That's, that is every natural man and every natural woman that you know in this world, unbelievers, they want to please themselves, not God. You did too before you came to know Jesus. I did before Jesus drew me to himself. I wanted only what's best for me. This is natural man. Paul says something very similar again in Romans 1, that human beings, even though God has clearly made himself known to them, clearly made himself known, both in creation and in their hearts, what do they do? They suppress the truth about God in their unrighteousness. They suppress it. They tuck it away. They don't want to deal with it. They know, but they don't want to deal with it. So they suppress it. And over time, the more they suppress it, the more God sears their hearts until they are no longer sensitive to it. That's what happens. Why do, why do we do that? So that we can keep living as we please so that we can do the things we want to do, so we can feed the flesh, feed our wants and desires, right? This is natural man. So you can know this for sure when you're out there sharing your faith. When people reject the gospel, regardless of what they say with their lips, right? The reason for it is not because, oh, there's just not enough evidence for Jesus. The reason isn't, well, I have all these theological questions that need to get answered. The reason is they don't want to turn away from their sin. They do not want to submit their lives to anyone. They want to do as they please. So they reject the light. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We just have to know that as we're sharing our faith. So that seems reasonable, right? Verse 37 seems reasonable. The Jews had all the evidence they needed, but they would not believe. Now, look what John says next. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet which he spoke, quote, Lord, who has believed our report or our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, so catch this now. John tells us that the Jews' rejection of Jesus as their Messiah was a fulfillment of prophecy, right? Spoken through Isaiah 700 years before Jesus took on flesh and came into the world. Guys, this is a hard truth. Listen carefully now. Israel's unbelief was a part of God's sovereign plan. Israel's unbelief was a part of God's sovereign plan. There's no other way to interpret this. Remember the words of Simeon. Remember when Jesus was brought as a baby to the temple to be circumcised? Like Isaiah, Simeon prophesied about Jesus. Here's what he said. This child is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be opposed. It's been prophesied. So Israel's rejection of the Messiah was not an accident of history. Okay, it wasn't a, a, you know, a gamble of the dice. Well, we'll just see how it goes. God wasn't up there going, well, you know what, I'll send my son and just see how it goes. Not an accident of history. Now, that doesn't take away the responsibility of, of Israel. It doesn't take away the guilt of the Jewish people. And this, more than anything else, is, is probably what creates the tension in your heart when we talk about election. Because A, this unbelief was part of God's plan, and yet B, every individual Israelite is still responsible for their rejection. And those two things fit together in God's way of operating in this world. That is the tension, isn't it? Those two things are true. Now, why would John use this particular verse from Isaiah? It's, it seems like a pretty random verse, right? Let's look at it. From a Christian perspective, this comes from one of the most famous chapters in the entire Old Testament, from Isaiah 53, right? which we all sort of know something about. It's a description of God's suffering servant that's to come. Isaiah 53 begins this way. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's exactly what John quotes here. Most of us, that's verse one in Isaiah 53. Most of us read right past that and jump to verse two. But verse one's very important. Whenever you see the term arm of the Lord, what does it mean? Right? It's talking about the power of God, his arm. He's got a powerful arm. The power of God, his mighty power. And John is talking about the miracles that Jesus did, right? He's talking about the signs in verse 37. And now he talks about the arm of the Lord, the power and the might that was behind these miracles. So God's power, his arm, was at work through Jesus' public ministry. Yet here's the question that remains. To whom was that power, keyword, revealed? Apocalypto, right? To whom was that power revealed? The power of the miracles. Can a person see without really seeing? Can a person see physically something, but spiritually not appraise it at all? Absolutely. That's what he's talking about here. If God doesn't open the eyes of the heart and remove spiritual blindness, human beings will not, cannot believe and be saved. Not just will not, but cannot believe and be saved if God doesn't do that work first. Even if they see someone raised from the dead. Right? We, we just saw this. Lazarus was raised from the dead and still people didn't believe. Then we saw how God spoke with a, a, a literal voice from heaven validating a son and people said, I didn't hear anything. Oh, that was thunder, they said. Oh, that was something else. They can't see and they can't hear. And this is not just a New Testament truth. I want you to think back to the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. You would think that the Israelites, I mean, the, the, probably the most condensed amount of miracles in one era, right? They saw so many things. They saw all the plagues come upon Pharaoh, didn't they? They saw the parting of the Red Sea and the pillar in the, of, uh, of cloud and fire. They experienced God's provision of, of miracles of manna in the wilderness, right? All these man manifestations of God's mighty arm, you would think that every single Israelite would believe. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. How could they not, you ask? Well, listen to Moses, Deuteronomy 29. Moses summed all of Israel and said to them, you have seen with your own eyes everything the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all of his officials, and to his entire land. You saw with your own eyes the great trials and those great signs and wonders. Verse four, yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind to understand. Eyes to see or ears to hear. You saw, but you didn't see because God didn't grant you the power to see. So again, it's not just Romans 9. It's not just John 12. It goes back to the Torah, back to Deuteronomy. Now, what did God use to produce this unbelief in Israel concerning Jesus? Well, again, Isaiah 53. What comes after that first verse in Isaiah 53? says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord, the power of God, been revealed? Well, here's the rest of the verse, verse two. He, this is the suffering servant, has no stately or impressive form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, one from whom men will turn away from. He was despised and we did not esteem or value him. That's what God used to produce this prophesied unbelief in Israel. He sent Jesus who looked like everybody else. In fact, looked in such a way that people weren't really drawn to him because he wasn't the type of Messiah they wanted. So to summarize, John says, Jesus did all these miraculous things before the people, yet they still would not believe, and this was God's plan. In fact, it specifically fulfilled what Isaiah had prophesied way back in 700 BC, that the message concerning God's suffering servant would not be believed. That Israel could not recognize Jesus. Hear me now, could not recognize him because of the suffering aspect. That's not what they were looking for. Instead, he would be despised and forsaken, a man from whom the crowds would turn away from, just as they're doing in John 12. They're turning away from him. And John wants his readers to know this was not a failure on God's part. It was a fulfillment of scripture. Not only did it happen, it had to happen. Now, it gets worse or better, depending on how you want to look at this. In verses 38 and 39, or 39 and 40, John doubles down and gets even more severe in his language. Look at verse 39. For this reason, this is why, John says, they could not believe. This is why they were unable to believe in Jesus. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. You're like, are you serious right now? What happened to that John 3.16? Right? This is, why, this is why it's so hard. I see these two principles in Scripture. Lord, help me understand how they fit together. Now, this verse is from the very famous Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, This is the, the, the vision of the throne room of God. Isaiah is ushered into the very presence of the Almighty. He's seeing this vision of the throne room of God, and it is an intimidating picture, right? Isaiah describes how there are these winged seraphs that are flying around in this throne room, and they're attending, right, to the Lord. And as they're doing so, they're covering their, their eyes and their feet, and they're saying to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they sing that night and day. It's wild, right? And he says, the, the, the doorposts shake and the smoke fills the room and there's all this stuff going on and Isaiah is absolutely wrecked by this vision. He is wrecked by it. Why? Because he, a sinful man, is suddenly thrust into the presence of absolute pure holiness. And he cries out, I am ruined, woe is me, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And there's this incredible response from from Yahweh, he, he brings a hot coal and touches, again, this is a vision, right? Touches his lips with this hot coal and declares that his sin is forgiven. He purifies Isaiah in his sight and there's all kinds of symbolism in that that we could go into later. Here's the point of that for our lesson today. Listen to verses eight and 10, eight through 10 in, in this same chapter, Isaiah six. So, so all this is happening, it says, then I heard the voice of the Lord, this is Isaiah, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, here I am, send me. I love, isn't that great? How many of you guys have said, somebody else want to go? He's like, I got this, right? Only, only why? Because God had purified him, right? Because he had seen God's graciousness in his life. I, I'm purified, my sin's forgiven. Now, let me go, let me go, let me go. I want to be your messenger. And the Lord said, go and tell this people here we go. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on looking, but do not perceive. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. That is exactly what John quotes in John 12. Now that is a, that is a ministry assignment, right? Go and render these people dull. I mean, no, no pastor, no ministry leader signs up for that assignment. But 
God says basically, okay, Isaiah, you volunteered to be my messenger, so I will send you to my people Israel, but you have to know this. They are not going to believe the message. They're not. They're not going to recognize my glory. They're not going to recognize my arm, the power that I I wield. They're not even going to recognize my one and only son when I send him. They're not going to recognize any of that. In fact, through the message I give to you, Israel's going to be rendered blind and dull and dim in preparation for judgment that is coming. This is why John quotes these two passages. So this is a judicial hardening upon Israel from the hand of Yahweh. This hardening and dulling itself is a punishment for the sin of the people, for their unbelief in the land. That's why, both for the Israelites in Isaiah's day and for 700 years later, for the unbelief of the Jews in Jesus' day. God's hardening of their hearts was a response to their own spiritual idolatry and stiff-necked rebellion. God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so this is a judicial hardening. So what John is saying here is a very hard truth. That the Jews' unbelief was not only foreseen by Scripture, it was brought about by Scripture. It was brought about by the very Word of God. Because they would not believe, God judicially blind them so that they could not believe. You see how those two things fit together? They would not believe, therefore God is going to judicially blind them so that they cannot believe. And again, those two things fit together somehow. It's a tough thing to accept. Here's the even harder thing to accept. This is still happening today in our world. There are people in our world all around us for whom God has hardened their heart. And they will not believe. It's a judicial hardening upon people that have been given the evidence they need to believe and they have rejected it and God has confirmed that hardening in their lives. This is tough for us, right? He is willed not to save them. He is willed not to save them. And this explains why, and maybe you've had this experience, why some folks, they're just not going to listen. It doesn't matter how how perfected your gospel presentation is. It doesn't matter how well you deal with all the theological objections. It doesn't even matter how well you love them. They will not believe. They cannot turn and be saved because they need God's grace to do that. They need God to draw them for them to be saved. They need God to regenerate the heart and he is willed not to do it. He's hardened them. This is tough stuff. But listen, it's also just on God's part. This is a, and Paul asked the question in Romans 9. Is there injustice with God? By no means. There's justice in this. The person who rejects Christ will receive not only what they deserve, but what they themselves have been asking for. They've asked for it. They want God to leave them alone. I, I don't say this with any joy. I don't relish having to say this. But they want God to leave them alone. They don't want Jesus in their business. They don't want to read the Bible. They reject it outright. They will not submit to biblical truth. And so the end, in the end, God will give them over to their selfish desires. It's what they want. Now, we don't have the vision of God, so we have to keep praying and we have to keep sharing because we have to have a heart for, for lost people. But there are people that God has hardened and they will not believe and they cannot believe. That's the truth of the scripture. I want to give you some summary points on this, and this comes from somebody way smarter than me, uh, D.A. Carson, who's one of my favorite theologians. He has some summary points which I think really help with this. Let me put them on the screen. Here's the first one. God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. It's never you pick one or the other. They fit together. That's, and how? That's something God will explain to us someday, Right? but they fit together. Scripture does not apologize for these two principles that fit together. And this is where we have to trust the word, right? Here's number two. God's judicial hardening, this is so important, is not the act of an arbitrary sovereign towards morally neutral or good people. That is such an important thing. Let me say it again. God's hardening is not the act of an arbitrary sovereign towards a morally neutral or good people. It is his holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. I'll let that sink in. But that's an important principle, right? 
Number th- I know, I see some of you guys. You can take pictures of it. Or, you know, you can always send me an email and say, send me that slide. Number three, God's sovereign hardening of the people serves as a stage of God's plan that ultimately brings about his redemptive purposes. Listen, God doesn't show mercy where he wills and harden where he wills for no reason, just because he, ah, I just feel like it. He always has a redemptive purpose in everything he does. And this hardening has a redemptive purpose. In our case, the hardening of Israel opened the door for the gospel to go out to the Gentiles, to the entire world. That's, why, again, why we're sitting here today. Whew. Okay, here's something else interesting. This same citation from Isaiah 6 is used two other places in the New Testament. So we get even more color from this. Early on in Jesus' public ministry, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, we hear the Pharisees trying to explain away the miracles that Jesus does. And do you remember what they do? They attribute the power of the miracles to who? Right, to Beelzebub or to the devil, right? They say, ah, and Jesus in response says, you know what? That is the one unpardonable sin that you would, that you would credit the power of God, the arm of God to Satan. And he says, this is the one unpardonable sin. And as a result of that ridiculous claim from the Pharisees, from that point forward, Jesus speaks to them in parables. Why? Not so that they would understand the exact opposite, so that they won't understand. In fact, in Matthew 13, the disciples asked Jesus about it. They're like, why do you keep doing this? You keep speaking in parables. Just tell them straight up. No, no, no. That's not how it works, right? By the way, I would have asked that question too. I get it. But this is how Jesus responds. Listen to, listen to the sovereignty in this. He says, to you, my chosen disciples, it has been granted, right, or given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the Pharisees, it has not been granted. I've withheld it from them. That's why I speak in parables. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he goes In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. Same prophecy. Jesus withheld it from a group of people while giving it to another. Sovereignty. And then later, the same verse pops up in the book of Acts. Okay, In Acts chapter 28, Paul, who for years has been preaching the gospel all through Asia Minor and Greece, and in almost every place he goes, his fellow Jews... Don't believe over and over again. And they harass him. They even try to kill him. You're like, but my fellow, he has such a heart for them. And they're like, nope, the Gentiles are, are like, we want to hear more. The Jews are like, go away. And now he's in Rome in Acts 28. He's waiting for a hearing before Caesar. And before he goes to the hearing, he calls the leading Jews from the city of Rome. And he gathers them together and he shares the good news about Jesus. And guess what happens? No, thank you, Paul. They will not believe. And so Paul says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke about you through Isaiah the prophet. It's the truth. So this this theme runs throughout Scripture, right? From Moses to Isaiah to Jesus and John to Paul. Throughout Scripture, God has sovereignly brought brought about a hardening in Israel because of their rebellion, because of their stubbornness. And in doing so, he is bringing about his plan for the ages. It's not without purpose. He opens up the door of salvation to the Gentile world. And guys, as we sit here today, this is the era we still find ourselves in until he returns. You and I are part of this plan, this sovereign plan from the beginning of time. Now, that doesn't mean that God is done with the Jewish people. Don't get this wrong. That's the whole argument of Romans 11, that God is not done with Israel. In fact, he says the promises made to Israel are irrevocable. Paul says, and when Christ returns, there is going to be a great outpouring of salvation among the Jewish people. Finally, God will give them those eyes to see and they will say, there he is, our Messiah. But not, in, but not now. Now there is a judicial hardening, Paul says, in Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come into the kingdom. Here's another thing this hardening doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God has stopped maintaining his remnant of Jewish believers even today. He's always had his remnant of Jewish believers. Because of what's coming in the end times, he maintains that remnant. By God's sovereign grace, he is still drawing 
select Jews to himself, opening their eyes, softening their hearts so that they would see, hear, and believe. If you're looking for some encouragement in all this, to me, this is the encouragement. That God is, it's not that he's hardened all of Israel, he is still maintaining his remnant. Paul himself is a great example, right? I mean, could you find a greater enemy of the gospel than Paul before he was saved? And yet God met him on the Damascus road and he broke his spirit and he showed him the glory and the scales fell off Paul's eyes and he looked at Jesus and he believed. Now you say, well, but why Paul and why not the rest of them? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, God says. That's it. Is that, is that unsatisfying? You mean God selected Paul but not others? Yes. Yes. God willed it to be so, period. Got really quiet there. That's the truth of Scripture, as hard as it is. One last thing I want you to see here this morning. Look at verse 41. I hope this is encouraging because this is a heavy message, right? I knew this was going to be heavy. Verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who's John talking about there? Who's the him? It's Jesus. According to the context, John is saying that that when Isaiah got that vision of the throne room and he saw Yahweh, who did he see? God the Son. Our, our mind, because it's Old Testament, goes straight to God the Father, right? But God the Father's spirit. We have all these pre-incarnate forms of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, showing up in the Old Testament. He saw Jesus, a pre-incarnate son of God, distinct from the Father, distinct from the Spirit. So according to John, it was the Son of God, not the Father, who spoke those hard words to Isaiah 700 years before he himself took on flesh and came into the world. Think about that. It was God the Son who hardened the hearts and blinded the eyes of Israel before he came and took on flesh and came into the world. It's Jesus who did it. It's been Jesus all along. There we go. Remember, he is the perfect revelation of God to mankind. So it stands to reason that when God revealed himself to his people, even in the Old Testament, it would have been through God the Son, second person of the Trinity. Now, Isaiah wouldn't have called him Jesus. That's his, that's his incarnate name, right? Jesus of Nazareth. He would have simply looked and said, there's Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, and it's Jesus. Same way, Abraham. Think about this. Abraham would have viewed Yahweh through the lens of God the Son. Remember back in John chapter 8, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. He saw God the Son. See, here's the thing I want you to think about before we leave today. How easily we can look at Jesus from what theologians call from below. Because we love the incarnation, right? We love, we love that Jesus took on flesh and he suffered temptation like us because it feels like he's just like us, right? And, and we love that part of it, and that's all well and good. But do we sometimes forget that we should start by looking at Jesus from above? That first and foremost, before he took on flesh, he's Yahweh, equal to the Father in every way, every attribute, in his very nature, so when we encounter the Almighty, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, we tend to think of God the Father, but that's often not the case. Most of the time, we're encountering God the Son, precisely because he is the face of the triune God. That's why he can truthfully say later on, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It makes sense, doesn't it? Friends, this is what makes the incarnation so spectacular. This is what makes the cross so mind-blowing. Think about this. We realize that this Jesus was the creator of the heavens and the earth, right? We all affirm that? That he walked in the Garden of Eden, that he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, that he instituted the Passover that foreshadowed his own death, that he followed Israel in the wilderness and provided for them, that he revealed the law to Moses and later God's word to the prophets. 
It's Jesus who sends the lightning down upon Elijah's sacrifice at Mount Carmel. It's Jesus who wipes out 185,000 of Sennacherib's Assyrian troops. It's God the Son. And then this is what helps us understand. When we read Revelation 19 and we see this conquering king who comes to make war, it all makes sense. This is who he's always been. We want to like, Jesus is so humble, he's this guy. But then later on, Revelation 19, a sword comes out of his mouth. That's always who he's been. He's Yahweh. He is the, he is the, the powerful God in the throne room of, of the Almighty. The train of his robe fills the temple. So when he comes back, yeah, you better believe that's what he's going to be. It's who he's always been. And then when we realize that how this majestic, powerful, and glorious God the Son was willing to become a baby in a woman's womb. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to even consider, right? That, that, he would, that he would be a, I mean, I've got a, a toddler in my home right now, my grandson, that Jesus would become a toddler, right? Jesus became a teenager. Don't get me started with that. That he would be willing to do all of that, right? That he would... God Almighty in the throne room that Isaiah saw, that he would be willing to limit himself, to lay aside his glory so that he would have to be hungry and thirsty and suffer pain and torture and mocking and spitting and nails being driven into his body. That Yahweh from the throne room is wild. That Yahweh is our tender Savior our substitute on the cross, our friend to sinners. He is the great physician. He is the great comforter. He's our shepherd, our redeemer, and our king. Same God. And so when we step back and see all of this, then the incarnation takes our breath away, doesn't it? But not until we see Jesus from above and see who he really is. See what John says about him here, right? By the way, if you want to get a sense for this, you can look at John himself as a man. Do you guys remember in the upper room that scene of the Last Supper? John is privileged to be in the inner circle, right, of Jesus' closest friends. And, and do you remember where John is in the upper room? He's right next to Jesus, right? And he's actually laying his head on the Lord's chest. They're that close. But then, years later, the same John is in exile on the island of Patmos, and he sees Jesus again. And this time it's not humble Jesus in flesh. It's Yahweh, God the Son, in all of his glory. And John says, when I saw him this time, I fell down like a dead man. Same, it's the same Jesus. One moment I'm, 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 I'm just snuggling up with him. And the next moment I drop dead in his presence. Whew. Here's the lesson for us. Beware of domesticating Jesus. He's good, but he's not safe. Remember that line? He's good, but he's not safe. Do not domesticate him. Beware of making him anything less than he is. Even as we enjoy and revel in the beauty of his incarnation, the same man in John's gospel, think about this now, the same man in John chapter 12, who in just a few days is going to willingly go to a cross and die as a substitute for your sin, is the same being who stands in the throne room and he is so perfectly holy that angels have to cover their eyes and their feet as they say, holy, holy, holy. Same Jesus, same yesterday, today, and forever. God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So then it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. Man, as hard as it is for us to wrap our minds around all that, take God at his word. Take God at his word. He is sovereign over all belief and he is sovereign over all unbelief. And in that, he is perfectly just and righteous in all of his judgments and no man has ever received anything from God except that which he deserves and wants. And here's the other truth. On the flip side, God has never once turned away a sinner who humbly came to him, seeking his face and pleading to be saved. 
Did you catch both sides of that? I'll say it again. No man has ever received from God anything but what he deserves and what he himself has asked for. And God has never once turned away a sinner who humbly comes to him, seeking his face and pleading for eternal life. If there's anyone here this morning who hasn't yet bowed their knee to Christ, anyone at all, and you desire to know him, I would say put God to the test right now. Cry out to be saved. If your heart is genuine in that request, it means at least four things. If your heart is genuine in that, it means four, one of four things. Actually, all four. That God is already doing a work in your heart. Number two, that God has graciously chosen you to be saved. Number three, that he is drawing you to himself right now and he's beginning to open your eyes to actually see. And number four, that nothing can, can thwart his will in saving you and nothing can separate you from his love. I've told the story, I don't know how many times, that years ago I was sitting in a Starbucks and this guy saw that I had a Bible open on the table and he walked up and he started mocking Jesus. And uh, I, I tried to ignore him because obviously there was nothing happening there. But he said, he said, you know, I've heard that I can't be saved unless your God says I can be saved. And I said, well, why don't you try? Why don't you put him to the test right now? Do you want to be saved? He goes, maybe. I said, that's not good enough. Do you want to be saved? He goes, fine, I want to be saved. Your God will save me, right? I'm like, cry out to him. I don't want to. And then he looked at me and said, but tell me, can, will he save me? And I said, go ahead, cry out to him. I won't. Okay. I mean, we did this like six times. Like, he wanted to somehow make the case that God, you know, had to do, the, I don't know, come down with an angel with a voice and all that. I kept saying, no, right now, put him to the test. In your heart, genuinely cry out to him and he'll save you. He wouldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. God wasn't working in his heart. God hadn't regenerated his heart. He had no ability to cry out and be saved. Guys, sovereignty is indeed a deep and mysterious well. And we will keep working through this as it comes up in the text. And I welcome anytime you want to sit down and have coffee to talk about this, we will. When you get to the bottom of this well, I'm telling you it's a glorious place to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. For every person here, Lord, this morning who is a member of your family, has been adopted as part of the divine family, Lord, may we never take that for granted. May we be blown away by your mercy. We, may we be blown away by the fact that you, you save sinners like us. Lord, may we see you for who you really are, Yahweh, the great and glorious one who took on flesh and then died so that we might, like Isaiah, be forgiven, that we might be purified in your sight. Lord, that is a wild concept. May this never grow old in our hearts. May we never just take it for granted. Oh, Jesus did this for it. No, Lord, seal these truths in our hearts so that we might worship you well, so that we might devote our lives to you, so that we might have compassion for the lost, so that we might share our faith. Because Lord, if you can save me, you can save anyone. God, help us to understand. Help us to, to deal with this tension between these two things. And may all of it ultimately lead to us praising you more, that you would receive the glory in our lives. Thank you for today. We love you. In the name of the great Yahweh, God the Son, we pray. Amen.